Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of January, 2024. And I'm Govind Rajathiraj, based in Mumbai, India's financial capital and right now in transit. First, a very happy and prosperous new year to all of you. And thank you for listening in and all the wonderful feedback that you've been sending across in ways that I truly appreciate. Our top stories and themes for the day, the 2024 market's outlook, it's mixed with optimism and caution. How will the rupee move against the US dollar in 2024? Hint, not much. How the White House is the world's largest and perhaps most successful oil trader right now. And free market liberal Arvind Panagriya takes over as chairman of the Finance Commission. And finally, will India's demographic dividend be its destiny? The markets fall back and some prognosis. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. How's 2024 started off for you? I hope well. So the coming year promises to be exciting for more reasons than one. India will elect a new government, which as things stand will be the old one, something the financial markets are betting on. Businesses will continue to expand steadily and in some cases cautiously as they feel out the consumer across different segments of the consuming class. Now, it is true that expensive cars and real estate are selling more than their cheaper counterparts or, to put it in one word, premiumization, a term that caught on in 2023. So, that is an opportunity for some, but also obviously something to be careful about because everyone cannot be producing or consuming only premium goods. The good news is, as advertising giant FCB India's India head, Dheeraj Sena told me in a year-end interview that played out last week, Indian consumers want to upgrade and would like to upgrade and want to be rewarded all the time. So anyone who can meet these aspirations at any segment of the consuming chain will and has always done well or better in the Indian market. But there are some caveats. Young consumers are living beyond their means and incomes while rising have to catch up to stay in step with their aspirations. Many parts of India that are linked to global businesses like information technology or IT services, global delivery centers or arms of large multinationals handling usually tech and innovation functions or even manufacturing for their parents will continue to do well, though their growth is pegged on the US and European economies to a large extent. 2023 for the first time saw the IT industry slowing down on hiring maybe in 25 years. So no industry can keep growing, of course, like no stock markets can keep going up. But the longer is the passage of time for a trend, then the reversal when it happens usually tends to shock the system. So many industries which are domestic-focused, from consumer products to pharmaceuticals and financial services, infrastructure to energy, will of course continue to do well, but will face the usual competitive challenges and the cyclical demand-supply pressures and, on occasion, policy pushbacks. I could go on, but the imponderables are obviously on the geopolitical front. The Suez Canal, which we usually read about in history books and then forgot about them, has made headline news twice in the last year, once when a ship ran aground, at a time when global supply chains were desperately trying to catch up with post-COVID demand, and more recently, when rebels in Yemen started attacking ships passing through to send a message to Israel and the West on the Israel-Hamas war. Speaking of COVID-19, it is of course back and cases are rising with the stock markets yesterday showing some early nervousness on the broader impact and the benefit, of course, to pharmaceutical stocks. Though last year as a whole, if you look back, the US Federal Reserve was pretty much the only institution that the financial world was watching to see what it would do on interest rates, which in turn has been affecting the dollar and portfolio investment flows into India. Now, you could argue 
that the US Fed does not affect the domestic economy, except when you realize that India's IT industry has been seeing a slowing down because companies in the United States have held back on investments in turn because of high interest rates. And oil prices, of course, which we will come to in some detail shortly. Now, India imports close to 88% of its crude oil requirements, so you can see how the strength of the dollar or oil prices can affect our economy. Remember, we pay for oil or a large parts of that oil in dollars. As a cross-border wealth manager told me last year, look at everything that you're wearing or carrying or driving in. Almost all of it, including your clothes, are likely linked to the dollar. So, what will matter in India, of course, looking now from the other side is jobs and where we stand demographically. That is, of course, one of India's biggest socio-economic challenges and more of that in a conversation that's coming up shortly. Stock market started 2024 on a weak note. The stock market started the first day of 2024 on a weaker note. Several reasons floated around, but one that was rising COVID-19 cases across India sent jitters in the market, at least to some extent. Now, though at times when several reasons are proffered for a certain event, usually neither of them have much real impact. I'm obviously referring to stock markets. On COVID-19, the trends are worrying. India has logged 573 new cases in the past 24 hours. The number could have risen overnight. While the number of active cases of infection has increased to about 4,500, the Union Health Ministry said on Tuesday, two deaths were reported from COVID yesterday. Over 260 cases of the coronavirus subvariant JN.1 have been detected in India so far. Back to the markets, the Sensex ended at about 71,892, that's obviously below 72,000, falling 379 points, while the Nifty 50 closed at 21,666, down 76 points. Now, one trend to watch since we are on trends in 2024 is obviously bond markets and investment in debt instruments, which is likely to increase and we'll come to that. The broader trend, as Uday Kotak, founder of Kotak Bank, said recently or a few days ago, is that India has now demonstrated a clear trend of moving from saving to investment or from being savers to being investors. Now, this, of course, is the holy grail that Indian financial market veterans have been projecting, forecasting, hoping and even praying for in the last decade or so though 2023 did seem like a turning point. One indication for this, obviously, is dematerialized or DMAT accounts with the holding bodies, that's NSDL and CDSL, which increased from about 10.8 crores or 108 million last year to about 13.5 crore or 135 million in 2023. So more investors are clearly coming in. But there are some other trends. More Indians, particularly rich ones, are actually moving base overseas with their present and presumably future capital flows too. And on the other hand, remittances back to India have hit an all-time high of $125 billion last year. Speaking of flows, the rupee is likely to appreciate to 81 rupees against the US dollar over the next 12 months amidst expectations of heavy capital inflows, Goldman Sachs said in a note on Tuesday. Still, the currency will underperform its Asian peers as the Reserve Bank of India could continue to accumulate inflows and build forex reserves at every opportunity, a Goldman economist said in a report quoted in Money Control. So the 81 rupee mark is actually bullish in contrast to other analysts who are projecting a weaker rupee, closer to about 83 rupees 33 paise that it was quoting on, on Tuesday. The good news is that the depreciation is very slow. The rupee just lost 0.5% of its value in 2023, its smallest annual percentage change in at least 20 years. Now, that is not accidental and is also the subject of contention 
between the Reserve Bank and some international bodies. But that's a subject that we've discussed in the past and I could come to some other time. So Goldman broadly expects both equity and debt flows to be strong in 2024, thanks also to the Federal Reserve starting to or hoping to reverse its interest rate hikes that it set about earlier. Back to debt, which I mentioned, foreign portfolio investments in debt went positive in 2023 after three years, thanks to attractive yields and the upcoming inclusion of Indian bonds in JP Morgan's index. Foreign portfolio investment in debt in 2023 is also the highest since 2017. Back to stocks before we move on to oil and crude. Remember that the Nifty has gained about 20% in 2023, with more than half of it in the last two months, that's November, December of the year. Also, mid-cap and small-cap indices are up by about 45% on an average in 2023. That kind of gain is pretty hard to replicate, even for small caps. And that's one reason investment managers are now a little wary of small cap funds for 2024 and switching to larger cap. And that's something that if you are an active investor, could also pay heed to. Now for the energy segment supported by India Energy Week. Tensions in the Red Sea leading into the Suez Canal continue to determine the sentiment on oil prices, which rose after Iran sent a warship to the Red Sea in response to the U.S. Navy's sinking of three Houthi boats over the weekend. Brent crude climbed to around $78 a barrel after declining by 5% over the previous three sessions, with West Texas Intermediate above 72%. Meanwhile, AP Moller Maersk has once again suspended all Red Sea transit to assess the situation in the Whitel Waterway, according to Bloomberg. And meanwhile, the production cuts from the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, and its allies will come into play in the next three months, though the threat of those cuts, which we've been talking about here, and thus curtailing supply, has not really done much to prices. Elsewhere, Bloomberg is reporting that India's crude oil imports from its largest supplier, Russia, plunged in December to the lowest since January 2023, as six tankers carrying so-called grade oil could not deliver thanks to payment issues amidst tightening sanctions, which means payment problems on the receiving side and not on the paying side. After rising to an all-time record of about 2.15 million barrels a day in May, oil imports from Russia fluctuated downwards and falling sharply between November and December to 1.48 million barrels a day, according to Kepler data quoted by Bloomberg. Of those six tankers left idle around India's coast, two indicated that they may reroute to China. The Wall Street Journal, meanwhile, is reporting that a record production of US fossil fuels, something we've mentioned in the core report earlier, is helping to keep the world stocked, blunting the impact of whitening conflict in the Middle East that has also curtailed key shipping lanes that we just spoke about. Oil and gas prices this past month have sunk about 5 and 23% respectively, says the Wall Street Journal. And this is largely because of a record production of US fossil fuels. US oil production has now grown to about 13.2 million barrels a day as of October, up almost 900,000 barrels a day from the same month in 2022, according to official data. Coming now to the White House. The Wall Street Journal says one beneficiary of cheaper oil is President Biden, whose energy department has recently accelerated its purchases of crude meant to replace the barrels it sold off in 2022 from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve. The government had sold the barrels at higher prices that year and is now competing more actively with international oil buyers. So put quite simply, the US government is selling high and buying low. 
Tankers have recently carried more US crew to the Netherlands, United Kingdom, Italy, Spain, France, Germany and other countries as more of Russia's crude has flowed to Asia following Western sanctions. US oil shipments to Europe have jumped 34% since this time in 2022 and 82% from before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, according to Kepler data. All of these data points obviously tell you that things don't necessarily pan out in that worst situation or the worst possible situation manner that we sometimes expect. And we could have surprises as we've seen in oil with the United States coming in or rather ramping up oil production. The energy segment was brought to you by India Energy Week to be held in Goa on February 6th. More details on www.indiaenergyweek.com. A free market liberal rejoins the Modi government. Dr. Arvind Panagriya, former advisor to Prime Minister Narendra Modi, has been appointed as the chairman of a new finance commission whose job it is to decide how the country's tax incomes will be farmed out to states. Some 42% of taxes collected are sent to the states. Dr. Panagriya, a PhD from Princeton University, was designated as the head of the 16th Finance Commission on Sunday. He earlier worked as the first vice chairman of the Niti Aayog from January 2015 to August 2017 and has also along the way, that's earlier, worked with the World Bank and IMF and has been a professor of economics. His new role does not involve setting policy on trade or domestic manufacturing, but he is a strong votary of the export-led way to growth and believes the opportunity for India is large on several counts and it's quite likely his presence may be felt across policy-making in the economic sphere. He pointed out in an interview with me four months ago, for example, that India should lower tariffs because eventually that affects the country's exports as well. Equally, going back to our earlier discussion on the show on the rupee, he has said that India's exchange rate rupee is a bit overvalued. You look at any country which has done well on exports, expanding rapidly at paces of 15 to 18% a year on a sustained basis. These are countries which keep the domestic currency very competitive. And we have consistently kind of a bit overvalued the rupee, Dr. Panagriya told me. I had the opportunity to catch up with him around four months ago, as I said, on the specific issue of exports and global trade and whether or how exports was the way to go. Let me begin with the question. On the falling exports, let me say that I look at these figures in a much longer term context. Monthly figures can see a decline. And in this case, of course, you have yourself provided a good explanation that the commodity prices have been declining and that would impact the value of exports as also value of imports. Most likely, you know, what we would also observe is that the value of imports would be correspondingly declining as well. To me, it is the longer term prospects that worry the most or that concern me the most. Now, where we stand, you know, how do I see this unfold? First of all, a common concern, of course, is expressed about what is going on geopolitically and more generally on the global markets. That part I have always maintained is, to me, not a big source of worry for the following reason. I come to geopolitics in a minute, but first, what has been the kind of very recent history? If I look at these longer-term trends, pre-COVID peak of global total exports was in 2018. And that was a figure of about $19 trillion total global exports, that is for the merchandise, then there was $6 trillion of services exports again. So altogether, $25 trillion pre-COVID peak in the year 2018. 
Now look at year 2022. By year 2022, which, you know, is coming out of COVID and all in the merchandise exports have bumped up to about $25 trillion from $19 trillion. And services exports have bumped up from $6 trillion to $7 trillion. So now the global marketplace total exports is about $32 trillion compared with what was about $25 trillion. So it is a large economy. It is a large market. Compare that to India's GDP, for example, it's about $3.4 trillion now in the year 22-23. And so no matter how one likes to kind of look at the geopolitics, etc., the one fact that is that remains to me is that the global marketplace, even if it were to decline by some 5-10% in the years to come, it will remain a very large marketplace. So what really matters is how large a slice of that very large pie India is able to get for itself. Currently, it's very small. In the exports, we are about 1.8% our share in the global exports. On import side, we are about 2.5%, little over 2.5%. That's for merchandise. Services, we are about 4% of the total global exports. So enormous scope. You know, compare that to the China, which is about 13 to 14% for merchandise exports. Services, China is larger than us, but not much larger. So that is where we stand. I think, you know, enormous scope. India's Jobs Challenge for 2024 Speaking of India's export and overall economic potential and competitiveness, the start of the year is a good time to remind ourselves, as our guest today will dwell on, demography or a demographic dividend, which India will reap for another four decades in terms of working age population, is not destiny. India needs to build capacity and resilience at home to sustain growth and invest in human capital to ready it for disruptive shifts in business models, which brings us to jobs. I spoke with well-known economic writer, veteran journalist and author Shankar Rayer on jobs in specific and what he felt India needs to focus on and also how important the matter was, particularly in an election year. So, first things first, unemployment is the number one or number two concern across opinion polls, across media platforms, across around 24 months. Like for two years, it's been on the highest. So if you look at opinion polls, there is unemployment, poverty, and inflation. And all are related because it's basically cost of living odds, the cost of living prices. So, uh, and this is more so in semi-rural, tier two, tier three towns. And what we are doing is a little unclear. If you look at the survey data that I cited in my column, periodic labor force survey, it shows that labor participation has improved. And despite that improvement, quality of employment doesn't seem to have changed. So you have barely 20% people who are employed who have wage or salaried employment and barely 11% in manufacturing, which means that the idea of shifting the workforce from farms to factories and all the PLI schemes are yet to sort of be fully harvested. There are two issues that concern me. We add something like between now 7 and 9 million people, depending on who's giving you the data, to the workforce every year. And the absorption capacity of the economy for that kind of jobs is reflected in the data in the sense that 22% of people are casual workers, 
and nearly half the workforce certifies itself as self-employed. Now, that might be they are running businesses, that might be they are in family-owned things, or they might be traders or whatever. But it's certainly a large percentage of the population to sort of call itself self-employed. The old joke in Indian films used to be that, you know, looking for employment is also a job. But more seriously, as the world looks at demographic, climate, and technological disruptions, it's very critical for India to train its people. So to me, there's a lot of ladder, buzz about skills, skill training and all. And yet you ask companies, they say we are not getting enough skilled people. You ask the young people, they say we don't find enough jobs. And all the dominant castes in India, the Marathas, the Jats and others, are agitating for quotas because they want those government jobs. So it is a critical issue. I don't see a very clear articulation about it. The one interesting development since I started focusing on this, I focused on this about maybe three years back when I cited the number of pending posts in government and a vacant posts. And that number is still around 2 million posts are vacant. And after that, the Prime Minister's office sought data and now the Prime Minister, every few weeks, issues employment or job letters to 75,000 people. There are two interesting developments. One is that we have entered into some kind of labor contract with Israel and then with Taiwan. So that's one way to sort of create offshore opportunities. But the big issue that one must worry about is that economy is driven by both demand and supply side equations. And demand will be sustained only when people have jobs and incomes. And so if you want a 6 plus percent GDP growth, you've got to find ways to employ those people. Obviously not a new problem. And in terms of the incremental, let's say, difference that we can make. But if you were to look at or if you were to focus on the one or two things that, let's say, we could do in 2024, which is different from before. For example, you've talked about meeting what we've committed to invest in health and education, which is a foundational investment. So that is one, 3% for education, 6% for health of GDP. To come back to the point, what is the one or two things that we could do differently, or at least we should attempt if we want to address this larger demographical jobs challenge? There seems to be a disconnect between the design of policy in Delhi and the implementation in state governments. I'll give you one instance. So all the states have what they call investment summits. Now, whether it is dovetailed to the programs, policy that are being designed in Delhi, for instance, the productivity-linked incentive scheme. Now, different states have different competitive advantages, and different PLI structures require different kinds of skill sets. Are they being matched? Now, if you look at some of the data flowing out of the PLI Department of Public Policy that puts it out, you see that the jobs are being created in electronic clusters in Noida, back maybe a bit around Gurgaon. This spread, and of course, Gujarat. Now, there are other pharma and other ingredient schemes. So the government, A, must figure out a way to map the jobs that are being created by this great investment summits. A, 
What is it every year? I think I suggested this before. This is a task for Niti Aayog for mapping this, saying which state, how much investment came, what kind of jobs were created, what sectors they were created. There's an old saying that what you can measure, you can improve. So if you don't measure your job creation, and there's very little scope for improvement. The other thing that, you know, Government of India has a very interesting program called One District, One Product, One District, One Crop. Now, this is an idea that needs to be leveraged again by state government by creating policy that enables investment in those districts which have been and those products which have demand. The one district, one crop idea actually is a way to lift the bulk of the workforce. About 45% of India's workforce depends on one-sixth of the national income. It's really the centrality of poverty is less there. If they move the products to food processing, if they move the products to the export market, if they bring the agri startups there, if they deploy AI there, so all of this requires what is called active labor policy. It's not enough to have a labor ministry or an ETIO or whatever the organization. I think states, governments suffer from lack of imagination. And I think there is lack of oversight in the central government as to how their policies are being aligned. Right. And uh, last question, Shankar. So, you know, this is uh, election year and I'm sure you know, the government and the political leadership will spend the next few months gearing up for it and then the transition and then the settling down of the fresh government even if it's the old one they still will have to settle down do you feel that we could lose a lot of time in wanting to do or setting out to do some of the things that you've talked about or would many of these things be on autopilot already no i don't think the elections for the parliament or lok sabha i don't think there is any reason that the elections should detain progress on these ideas. I mean, these ideas have to be implemented by the state government. The state governments, about 10 of them or 12 of them, are sitting on the new labor code and not adopting them. The state governments are sitting on the pharma produced corporations, which are supposed to be created and not. The state governments are not willing to adopt the new farm policies which were left to them. State governments are not doing enough to liberate land and labor laws. So it is up to the state governments. We don't have elections in the states. State governments, if they sort of push this, I think what happens in India is for some reason, and this is an enduring mystery to me, is that state governments and parties ruling in the states get a free pass on how they manage the economy. I mean, the economy is not just something that is produced out of North Block. It's, it's produced out of 30 states. So a, what, this is the question that I always sort of ask. And if you only we spent Half the energy advert that has been used to advertise Vande Bharat trains for other useful purposes, I think we would do a little more better. And I think on as somebody who's a writer and journalist, I think we need to focus much more on state government budgets. And that's a good point to end, Shankar, with the promise that we will spend more time and I will be back to quiz you on a few state budgets and what they've either achieved or not in coming months. Thank you so much. I look forward to this and a happy new year to you and to all your listeners. Thank you. And that's it for me. I look forward to hearing more from you and staying in touch with you this year. And I wish you all the very best. Bye for now.
That was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core dot in. And thank you once again for listening.